I promise you I don't like doing the I told you so stories about what we did during COVID, but I have two more of those for you today. Plus a bombshell story in the mental health world that's not getting enough attention. We'll do that and more on this week's Corey Truax Show. The headline from Psychology Today, a publication very friendly to all the claims of the mental health profession. The headline from that publication is this, a decisive blow to the serotonin hypothesis of depression. In large part, what this study and what some of these results are showing is that everything we've been told the last 30 years, 40 years about depression It's not quite right. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll get started on that story in just a moment and all the many cascading effects and consequences thereof. Amongst many other things, I get to serve the wonderful people of Beechwood Church as their pastor for teaching. We meet on Sunday mornings in Greenville at 1030. You're invited. We'd love to have you out any given time if you are not part of a church family. I suspect this is going to take me longer than usual in the first segment And so the other two might be a little short today, so let's get started. Here are the facts. We have understood that when a doctor, or we've assumed, when a doctor has prescribed to you a depression medicine, as currently over 60 million Americans are on, we have understood them to be saying, you have a chemical imbalance in your brain. And it's causing you to feel these ways and behave these ways. And so we're going to give you this SSRI pill. Granted, I do not understand the science of SSRIs. But we're going to give you this pill as a way to make the balance in your brain of chemicals, excuse me, the all the chemicals in your brain properly balanced so as to address your depression. Here is some key points from... Christopher Lane, who's writing for Psychology Today, of a very significant study. I, I just see at least four. At least 85% of the public believes that low serotonin causes depression. Of 237 psychology students interviewed, 46% said that depression is caused by low serotonin. So we, fi- we find in the study it's not true Chemical imbalance isn't the cause of depression, but even 46% of students studying this have heard that, that, that that's the case. The serotonin hypothesis, this hypothesis that it's serotonin levels that cause depression, has been challenged repeating uh, repeatedly. It's been found wanting. Even though it's popular, there's not actually any real evidence for it. And now a comprehensive, well-powered, high-quality Umbrella Review has determined, this is from the quote, this is from the story, the quote, it's not empirically substantiated. We don't have the data on that. Now granted, for me, this matches, this information, this conclusion has matched my long-standing instinct. I'm a, I, I'm a, I tend to be a black and white kind of guy, 
And and therefore, this very real science, the, the mental health sciences are sciences, they just happen to be soft sciences, just like economics is a soft science. There are some conclusions we make without having absolute black and white data like you do in the medical sciences. Just for example, I, I know how to diagnose uh, diabetes. There's a certain level of insulin that should or should not be. We know how to diagnose a broken femur because we take an x-ray and it's right there. We know how to diagnose a, a carotid artery or some or heart issues. We can give those tests. And we know what the normal amount of blood flow should be through an artery. We know the normal amount of insulin. We know that bones are actually supposed to stick together. And so those are obvious and easy diagnoses. We know what's going on. But the mental health world has never really had that, and it's bothered me. That doesn't mean, by the way, that if you're on some medicine right now that you don't have what the doc says you have. If, he, if they've told you you're ADHD or uh, anxiety, depression, the, like the biggest ones, I'm not saying you don't have those things. I'm not saying your medicine doesn't help you. What we are saying from the study is we don't know how. And we don't actually know for sure that if you were told serotonin was the reason you were depressed... We don't actually know that because there's never been a real test. I actually pulled up for you in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual 5, the DSM-5. This is the manual mental health professionals use to make a determination. Here, to make a determination on what's going on with you. Here's the eight things. The DSM outlines that an individual must experience experiencing five or more of the following eight symptoms in a two-week, in at least a two-week period. Uh, and also, just as a prerequisite, they must be in a, quote, depressed mood or, quote, have lost interest or pleasure in life. So you can already see how it's, it's not as hard a science as a blood test. It's, it's already not as hard a science as an x-ray. Like, we, we have eight things. If you check off the box for five of them for two weeks then you're depressed, and we should give you some, some meds. Here are the eight. I'll go fast, I promised. Um, the, person, or the patient says they're in a depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day, like, but even in that one. What is a depressed mood? I know that I, my depressed mood is going to look differently than someone else's depressed mood. I mean, that, for some people, that's despair. For some people, that's a, a, a moodiness. How about number two? They have a markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities most of the day or nearly every day. They have significant weight loss or weight gain or uh, an increase or a decrease or increase in appetite nearly every day. Now, at least there's something there. That's something hard. I can measure, has this person lost a lot of weight or gained a lot of weight rapidly? Four, there's a slowing down of thought and a reduction of physical movements that's market enough that it can be deserved, excuse me, observed by others. That the person is just kind of losing their sharpness of thought and they're slowing down physically. Five, fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day. Six, feelings of worthlessness or, this is important, unexpressive or inappropriate feeling of guilt nearly every day. Now, there's an assumption we make there. We make an assumption that there is a correct and appropriate amount of guilt to feel. And for every person, that's different. 
some of you might have pervasive guilt, and you should. There's something you're doing to someone right now, and you need to feel guilty about it until you've rectified it. This says there's some kind of inappropriate or excessive amount of guilt. And if someone's feeling it, they might be depressed. How do you even have the baseline? Because I have the baseline when it comes to insulin, when it comes to, I'm trying to think of other like chemical things. When it comes to others, I know how much stuff, how, how, uh, how much sodium should be in a test of yours. And if you have, you're overly salinized or not enough salinization. How do I know how much guilt is appropriate? Seven, diminished ability to think or concentrate. Eight, recurrent thoughts of death, recurrent suicidal ideation, uh, or a suicide attempt. So if five or eight of those is true, we are depressed, and we want to prescribe you a pill. You can see how it is just fundamentally different from hard medicines. Now, this is not, don't hear me doing this, I'm not diminishing the mental health field. I think talk therapists are super important. I am saying we don't actually have, I'm not, actually, I'm not saying this, psychology today is saying we don't have a credible, absolute claim that there's a chemical imbalance that these medicines are treating. Now, we can't even say this. We can't say the medicines don't work. All we can say now is we work, they, they seem to be working, and we don't know how or why. I mean, there's people I know, I'm not going to say their names, uh, that are super close or not as close, but I've had conversations with, and you ha- had a, a a really bad situation emotionally, mentally, you started taking something, and it has changed. I know of at least one commentator who's getting more and more, I'm going to leave his name out too, who's getting more and more tedious. He would just claim, yeah, it was a, it was a placebo effect. A doctor told you if you took this, you'd stop feeling this way, so you took the thing and you stopped feeling that way. It was just placebo effect. You believed it. I don't think that's true. I think these things are these are powerful drugs. They're doing something. But it, it does lead me to say that we are giving chemicals to people who don't, we don't know that anything is wrong with them chemically. We don't know that there is. Maybe there's other options in the mental health world. I noticed this. There's an odd intersection here of biases. Secular folks and folks on the left, they interact with things like depression, anxiety, all the mental health stuff, with very little skepticism, really no skepticism. There's just an absolute surety that your emotions in your mind and what doctors have said about them and what the industry has said, they're just right. And what's odd about it in the intersection is the left is generally skeptical of giant industries. They're skeptical of big oil, big business, the big banks. But here is a giant industry. Pharmaceuticals is a giant industry, multi-billion dollar industry. And we, we even know, if we go back to just the last few years, actually the last few decades with the op- opioid crisis, we have recent evidence to show they'll do stuff to make money, just like the rest will. They'll cut corners to make more money. They'll do it. Is that the entire industry? Does it mean the entire thing is is rotten? No, I'm not saying that. But we do know, we have recent evidence that drug companies will push drugs that they know have some some consequence. And there's been real consequences to pushing all those pain pills, to selling to doctors that there's a level of pain that's inappropriate and we can fix it with a pill. 
And then equally the right, people like me, we tend not to be skeptical of big business. I don't, I think profit motive is actually incredible because true profit motive will lead you to want to do the best thing for your customer and for your customer long-term because you want to keep them buying from you for a long time. You want them to be healthy. It's in your, it's, there's an incentive here to do a great job for people. We, we believe in the profit motive and that's why we're not skeptical of big business and big pharmaceutical and big, well, all the bigs. But it is actually folks like me who tend to be skeptical of these things. And it might be, it might just be a worldview thing about the nature of humanity that I think people like me, I know me, I look at the world naturally and think, yes, there's circumstance, there is trauma and events. Those things cause adverse maladies in the emotions, in the mind. And there is healing for it. We, we know from the Christian perspective, ultimate, ultimately healing is going to be through Jesus. It's going to be a spiritual healing. And also, there's going to be need for tools and strategies to shape the mind, to take every thought captive. And we tend to think that that's where a lot of these maladies in the mind and the emotions come from, and that it's not physical. And they've, we've kind of switched on when it switched left and right when it comes to skepticism over this industry and the content therein. So here's where I want to start closing up this topic. We're not finished yet. I got more to say, but here's what we know at least. We are giving people powerful drugs for depression. We technically don't know what they do. We technically don't know why they work. So some, some things I don't want you to hear me saying, don't stop taking any meds you're on. If you're on them, keep taking them like you're supposed to. And then I think it's very much worth you asking your doctor, hey, I saw this study. Psychology Today published it. They're not skeptical of your industry. And they're saying this pill I'm on, we don't really know how it works. And, can, and just at least be willing to talk through it. I just think it's been such an American medical instinct just to hear a problem and say, yeah, here's a pill. All, all the way around the, 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 the way. I mean, it's, you'll hear a doctor when he's dealing with a patient who has heart problems say, well, you know, you need to get your diet under control. You need to get more mobile and exercise. And there's some natural ways to help your heart. It's like, yeah, here's some pills. Now, they don't say one and not the other. I am saying, we culturally, it just seems like, well, we got a pill for that. And so instead of doing what is probably the harder work or the referral of a doctor, referring out to a counselor or something, it's just, yeah, well, you know, we'll give you a pill. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll write you a new prescription. Hey, if that one doesn't work, I got more. We'll figure out a dosage. This is, this is me being w- weird in that I, I'm, I'm not skeptical of doctors. I'm not skeptical of, of people. I think people generally, again, because of profit, want to do the best thing. But there is, some, there is an oddity here in the American medical system that we're motivated not to get people to live healthy, but for people to live however they want, and then let's just find a pill to give them to solve the problem later. So I am, I'm saying keep taking your medicines and at least talk to your doctor about it because we have actually no idea why they work or what, or what they're doing. Now, some broader final thoughts on this. 
this continues to convince me about how much we have medicalized what it just is to be humans. We're medicating tens of millions of people, sometimes because the human experience is hard. I think about what we medicate for. We medicate you if you're too worried, too sad, if you feel too much in despair, if you uh, have a lower activity, you're feeling too much intense grief or your loneliness or your attention span is too it's too short. Those aren't chemicals. Those aren't anatomy. What is the baseline of worry? How much anxiety is appropriate? How much grief is appropriate after you lose a loved one, a relationship, a job? How do we know that your experience of loneliness is disordered and you need to be medicated? We don't actually know that there's a physical malady for all of those. Now, I am convinced, I may not have the evidence, I'm convinced that there are those with a physical malady, that there is probably something different about their brains or something that causes excessive uh, versions of those emotions. I'm just saying, we don't actually have the science yet. Maybe we'll figure it out. We don't know yet. I fear this. I fear that we, because we're assuming chemical imbalance is what causes all these things, that we might miss the actual problem and then never try to solve it. We've been breeding a culture of isolation for decades. Isolating from your family, and then isolating into a smaller group of friends, and then putting, putting you on screens. We've been isolating people. Our largely hedonistic culture, that pleasure is everything, has led to, or let's go with hedonistic and materialistic, pleasure and material is everything. We've all experienced it and just feels all meaningless. So we've got a culture of isolation and meaninglessness where that's causing a lot of negative emotions and instead of trying to treat that with social integration and living life for meaningful things, we medicate it with chemicals. And listen, some people need to be medicated with chemicals. I don't have evidence for that at the moment, but I'm sh- like my instinct says I'm sure that's true. It just means that it doesn't... This doesn't mean... I'll start there. This doesn't mean that physiological issues don't exist. They obviously have to exist. But it does mean there are people on drugs right now that don't have physiological issues. There's nothing different about their chemical makeup than mine. But we've medicated them anyway. I just want to stop. I think that's, yeah, that's the finishing point. There are other problems. Our isolation, our meaninglessness. There are really Christian answers to those. The God who designed our mind and emotions and brain knows what we need. And I fear by chalking up all of these negative emotions to chemicals, even inside the church, we will stop recognizing the real core problems and trying to treat those. So take your meds. Ask your doctor about this thing that we just found out. 
and let's be people cognizant of a world word a world that very much is depressed and worries a lot and try to offer hope not outside of medicine alone I'm not saying we don't do medicine but we we are offering the the spiritual solutions as well when we come back it's a couple things that have transpired on the backside here of covid that goes into that I told you so category. We'll do that and more when you return for the rest of the Core True Act show wherever you find podcasts and right here on his radio talk. Dr. Deborah Burks, part of our giant medical infrastructure in the United States government, one of the faces of the COVID response, admits something that, I don't know, a lot of us were saying at the beginning of 2021, even in it's got me a little frustrated. I want to tell you about that and a little bit more. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. Find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for my weird name, Corey Truax. You can also email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. I'm going to say that a little slower. Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you with anything you think should be on the show. Uh, you know, before we get into this Deborah Burks thing and a couple of COVID, I told you so. I, I don't think I've wrapped up that mental health story properly with why I wanted to, why I wanted to do it. In part, I, I know I, I played that up as a vindication of kind of a theory I've had, but I'll give you the stat. In, out in the Christian colleges, there's a fairly large study and story that just came out. I don't remember where I saw it published of the number of students that go to Christian colleges that are currently in some kind of counseling. And it was, in one way, it's, it's harrowing. Like it's, oh, just found it. Here we go. Uh, 35% of Christian college students are in some kind of regular counseling c- compared to 26% of secular colleges. And it is 44%, oh, I'm sorry, that was the wrong number. Uh, 44% are seeing a mental health professional uh, on the regular, 26% of secular students. So more Christian kids are seeing a mental health professional talking to them regularly than their secular counterparts at secular colleges. And one way, that's harrowing. You, I hear it, and it makes me sad for the church. I got kids we're sending off to Christian colleges, and they've got enough issues that, that they are feeling like they need to see a mental health professional with regularity, which, by the way, is not any shame. I have. I've done... Not anymore, but I went to a period where I that was very helpful to me. Uh, my uh, fiance and I, Nicole, we are regularly seeing a. He's just doing premarital premarital counseling, but he does mostly the hard stuff. Some real, and he's from a biblical perspective. And hear that word, not a Christian perspective, but a biblical perspective, because Christian can mean anything. And he's been great. He's very. It's very important. So, what I'm saying is, I I look out at the. The, where, the place where the Lord decided to plant me, and we have largely decided our struggles are environmental or physical. Something's wrong with the world around me, or something's wrong with my body. And that's what's causing me all this anxiety or depression or despair or whatever it is. And we've eliminated the idea almost that like, what are you responsible for? What part do you play in your own self-assessment, self-rescue, self-healing? Like, what 
what what might you do? And so, I, well, I, I saw this being true of a Christian college and just how many kids in colleges are in therapy. It tells me I do have a despairing, hurting, confused world. And I actually think I do have the answer for a lot of it. Not all of it, because some of it is physiological. But let's... I mean, I've, I've talked about it on, before on the show. We, 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 we now do have some evidence about how trauma, real traumatic experiences, abuse, abandonment, these types of things, that they're held in your body. It actually changes your... I don't want to say genetics. That's not true, I don't think. It changes your physiology in some way. I, I played a clip from the uh, Tell No Lies or Speak No Lies podcast, if you recall. I, I did that on the show. Epigenetics, that's what it was called. I just, it just popped in my head. Epigenetics, that there is some kind of change in you. you. You hold your trauma if you had any. You hold your abuse. All right, so that might be drugged, but that also might be something we can talk through. Counseled through. In the old school Christian world, we called that soul care. And so I, I, I got to move on to other stuff. I'm just trying, I feel like I, I ended up talking to you about that as a way to vindicate me saying, see, I, I knew something was wrong here, and not saying to you, guys, we actually obviously have a problem. Tens of millions of people are on drugs. A huge chunk of our students are in therapy. People are hurting and freaked out in a very unchristian culture, and we might actually have the answers and the resources in the gospel to help a lot of this. And that's why I told you about it and what what, what I want us to work on. That's the That was the point. I hope it came across that way. All right, here we go. Deborah Burks. She was the other face of pandemic response that wasn't named. What was his name? Uh, Fauci? Dr. Fauci? Anthony Fauci? She was the other face of pandemic response. Recently said the words after the President of the United States was uh, infected with COVID-19. She said the words, "We, we, we probably overplayed the vaccines. Oh, boy. If I would have said into this microphone on March in 2021, remember the vaccines came out in January of 2021, or maybe they were a little bit before, I don't remember, somewhere around there. If I would have said into this microphone in March 2021, I think they're overplaying the efficacy of the vaccines and how it's going to change everything. And then I wrote that into the notes of the show that was going to be published. There, oh man, the flags on my show. The get your COVID-19 information at this resource center here. The the throttling of my of my listenership. I'd see the numbers drop when you put in the wrong, not, not a huge amount, but you see the numbers drop some when you put in the, the, the keywords. But I mean, that's what I was seeing. Like, here's what we were told. Joe, uh, the president of the United States actually said, if you get the vaccines, you won't get COVID. Rot row. That ended up being not the case for at all. But we were told two things primarily. One was that you can prevent yourself from getting COVID by getting the vaccine. Two, you're selfish. You got to do it because you can infect others. So you, you need to protect yourself and that might be selfish, but you can f- protect others if you get this vaccine. Both of those things have obviously been lies. The thing that's been true, what should have been said from the beginning, is if you'll get a COVID-19 vaccine, you do well for yourself. You might protect you. But we are seeing, obviously, that transmission 
and infection are, I guess, probably adjusted in some way. But we're talking about, I mean, the President of the United States got like three doses. He still got it. We see that stories a lot. We even see people like me with natural immunity get reinfected. And so what we actually know is this vaccine is only for you. You're the only one that benefits marginally on the statistics. I say that because I know there's I know there has to be some effect. You're you've got to be less likely to pass it if you've had a, had that vaccine. That's obvious, logical and true. It just seems to be that the numbers of infection over the last year and a half of having the vaccine is that whatever effect it has, it's very minimal. And a lot of us were saying that. A lot of us said, you're overplaying the vaccines. It's incredible that you guys got to one from, and I've said that many times, like less than a year. That's, that's awesome. How cool is that? Way to go, science people. But then you sold them as a cure-all and made a mistake. And so, yes, thank you to Dr. Burks for finally saying what we all knew, people like me, knew a long time. Yeah, you overplayed the vaccines. Two, this one's in Canada, but it's, it's one I kind of followed. There was a pastor up there, Arthur, oh boy, Pulowski? Arthur Pulowski. He kept his church open during the COVID-19 lockdowns in Canada, which... I would argue, and I think I'm completely correct, it was the right call. He, he made the right biblical call to say to the state, this isn't your business. This is the realm of the church. You do what you're going to do. We're going to open the church because you're not sovereign over my church. The government doesn't get to run everything. He did the right thing. Now, he's also not my cup of tea in that the, the videos of him, goodness, uh, he's a yeller. He... Um, he, he called the cops Nazis who came into his church. And granted, the guy came from a part of the world, he immigrated to Canada, came from a part of the world where governments are much more jackbooted thugs. And I mean, the guy was in Canada. They're, they might be edging towards totalitarianism, but it will be the sweetest, nicest totalitarianism anyone ever had because they're Canadians. They're a largely effeminate group. So this is uh, what happened with him is he was fined like crazy. I don't think he was ever arrested, but he was given lots and lots of fines. The There's a three-judge panel in Canada that recently overturned all of the decisions against him and said that all of the money he was fined and was paid has to be paid back to him. It was tens of thousands of dollars. That all of the other fines being levied against him are uh, vacated. He was completely vindicated uh, vindicated. Uh, let me go to the story here. I got this from the Christian Post. About halfway through the story, uh, Pulowski pointed to the treatment he has received of the, over the last two years as a violation of the order in the preamble to Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedom, which proclaims that the country acknowledges the supremacy of God. Quote, Leave the pastors alone, leave the clergymen alone, leave the Christians alone. This country was built on Judeo-Christian values, the supremacy of God, and the rule of law, Pulowski said. Quote, we're not criminals. Those that did that to us are the criminals. 
and I hope one day we will be able to go after the real villains and charge them for the crimes that they have committed. So that's, that's when you see or what I say, he's not my cup of tea. Can you see why? There's a vengeance there, and let's, let's go get the ones that did us wrong. It's just not, it's just not my style. Uh, okay, so those were two vindicating things on COVID that I, I wanted, to, uh, wanted to get to. So I'm going to now, since we went long on the first segment, we're going to go short on the second and get, get us right back on time where we're supposed to be. So when we come back, I want to talk about another story about vengeance and why it's a bad idea. I have a illustration for you and why the political desire for vengeance is actually quite destructive. We'll do that and more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Chuak Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I'll do a little of what's in the news to finish up, but I want to start with that word on vengeance and why it's a destructive uh, motive for driving forward any kind of action. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. Glad you're here. Email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can help out with creating content for the show as well. I, I found in the Marvel world, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that the uh, Stan Lee, the creator of all those, he seemed to understand that vengeance is a really bad motivator. Often, his villains were trying to address some kind of wrong they feel like happened to them. And I remember, in particular, I, I, I talked to my two boys, my two nephews, about this after we had seen uh, Captain America Civil War, which set off two of the heroes against each other. At the climax of the movie, the the villain who had set the two bad guys against excuse me, set the two good guys against each other, he was use he was using vengeance as the motivator, and he was motivated by vengeance. Everyone had felt wronged, and they were gonna destroy each other over it. And he comes up to one of the characters, uh, excuse me, he interacts with one of the other good guys who has a vendetta against him, and so this good guy has every opportunity to kill Someone who actually killed his dad. That's the storyline. And that good guy character, it's actually the Black Panther, says to him, Vengeance is destroying them below, the two heroes who were fighting. It's Captain America and Iron Man, by the way. Black Panther says, Vengeance is destroying them below. I will not let it destroy me. And then he gives mercy to this, to this bad guy. Maybe you know that from your own life. When you are motivated against your spouse, against a sibling, someone at work, your motivation is that they have done something wrong to you and they're going to pay. You're going to get your vengeance. It's an ugly emotion. It's destructive. And it's really never satisfying. It's, it's one of my... <laughs> Oddly, it's terrible theologically. One of my Taylor Sw- favorite Taylor Swift songs is called Better Than Revenge. And it's a, it's her singing to some girl who stole a guy from her. And I don't know exactly what Taylor Swift is claiming in the song she's going to do to get revenge. But the tagline of the chorus, like the money line is, um, there is nothing I do better than revenge. And I'm sure there's like a fleeting satisfaction to being able to inflict pain on someone who's inflicted pain on you. 
But in the end, it's just two hurting people. You feel like you got justice, but it's now just created more hurt in the world. I'm giving you this illustration because it, it does come into our world, into the news a bit, and I want to go ahead and set up the value that revenge is a terrible motivator. That the Bible would tell us, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He'll get justice. He'll get vengeance. It's not in your power to do. It's If it's not in your realm of authority, don't take vengeance. Don't get revenge on people. And so we take that even into the political world and the, and the social world and civics and what's going on in the world. So let me take it there. I am hearing from the party on the right that when they get power after this November of either the House, the Senate, or both, what they're really motivated to do is launch some investigations. Let's investigate Hunter Biden. Oh, we want to investigate the FBI for that obviously faked dossier from Kevin Steele um, that that sent out into the world the idea that the former president of the United States was being urinated upon by Russian uh, prostitutes and like, the whole thing was fake. They, they want to go after that. Uh, some of them, I think very wrongly and stupidly, want to investigate the 2020 election. Why? They want revenge. They, they want to investigate the social media companies that covered up the Hunter Biden story, and they want to get to the bottom of it. I, I tell you this, the, these are bad motivations to get power, to get revenge, but also it will be ineffective. I need to say that out loud. I don't think I have any listeners who actually are people of power. I know I have some listeners who work in low-level positions in at least one congressional office. I am sa- I'm saying to you, what an, what an idiotic agenda. The American people are largely concerned about three things. How much everything costs, inflation, having a healthy economy and employment, and crime. That's the big three right now. The vast majority of Americans could not care less what's going on with Hunter Biden. They don't care. And if you try to make a campaign about it, if you try to make it an agenda item, you'll lose those, those people. Most of them could not care less about the election of 2020. We're all over it. We're done. I'm done. Let's go. Let's move on. And if you get your concerns uncalibrated from the people, you'll get shellacked later. That's actually what's going on on the left right now. They are most concerned with teaching your kids they can be the opposite gender. They're most concerned with sexual freedom and no-consequent sex. Like they, that's their concerns right now. They're all about the, or, or climate change. Those are their concerns. And the American people are saying, oh, I'm concerned about the economy, inflation, and crime. I think we have those problems. And the left looks back at them and says, you're a bigot if you don't affirm your, your boy is a girl the moment he says that he sort of likes Black Widow instead of Iron Man. Like, hey, we're not talking about that. We're, we're not concerned with it. We're concerned about these three things. And folks on the right, if you make revenge your your agenda, and it's about Hunter Biden and previous elections and what the social media companies did, the American comp- the American people are going to look back at you and go, I didn't elect you for that. I don't care about that. I care about the economy and care about inflation, care about crime. I want to deal with those things, deal with those things. 
uh, I, and then I, I wrote down one exception to this. I don't think Congress is the right body for this, but I, you know how that we have this January 6th committee? I don't have a lot of respect and regard for what they're doing, but it's something that Congress has done in the past to set up these special, these special committees to investigate things and ask some questions. I really don't want Congress to do it. I'd love to get bipartisan appointment. Uh, oh, I'll give you an example. None of you will remember this because you're not a nerd like me. But when I was in college, the Bush administration, I'm almost positive this is true, the Bush administration had the Erskine Bowles Commission, and I can't remember if Erskine or Bowles was the Republican or the Democrat, but they were former senators. They weren't even in office anymore. They were old men. And they picked an even number of people to sit on the commission to study the deficit and the debt. And they were to issue their report and their recommendations on the deficit and the debt and what should happen. Uh, what, what what steps Congress should take. I'd like to have something like that for COVID response. The further away we get, uh, how do I say this? I am not given to anger. At the time, I was frustrated with COVID response, and I saw anger in other people, and I was mostly repelled by it. I don't like the anger. As, as time continues to go by and all those things that we were doing that I called stupid at the time, but I'm now just seeing cause so much pain, long-term damage to kids, and learning loss, long-term damage to these, uh, this, um, this emotional state we're in. It was post-COVID that it really exploded with all of this, with, with all of our mental health issues. It, inflation is what is worldwide. It's hurting people. It's mostly because of what we did during COVID. The very dangerous precedent set. It is dangerous that governors just said, we're having an emergency, you can't go to church. We're having an emergency, you can't go to work. We need some real parameters on what governors can do with when there's an emergency, what presidents can do. And I mean this, if you're on the right, left, or center, that should terrify everyone. It should be terrifying that the governments, and get, get this, I'm not given to hyperbole. I'm not given to, to fear. I try to specifically bring down people's fear and anxiety level. That's like a thing for me. And I'm telling you, the more I think about what we did during COVID, I get angry, I don't get scared, but there's maybe there is something like that. Like we just said, they just said, there's an emergency. We can do whatever we want. There's got to be protections around that. And I need, I need every ideology to hear that. There's a, a terrorist attack or some kind of military issue, and you fear that the government might say, it's, a, it's an emergency, we're going to tell you what to do, and there's really no constitutional rights anymore. We're just totally in charge. If you're on the left, fear it that way. If you're on the right... Fear it with what we just went through with COVID. That this government thought they could tell the church not to meet, they could tell you not to go to work for something that we we all now can see wasn't as high risk. I mean, I don't, I don't, I specifically don't want to criticize a bunch of folks who were in the midst of it trying to make decisions. And look, listen, I'll, I'll have as much patience as I can for all that, but we're on the back side of it now. 
We do have hindsight. It is 2020, and there's going to be other emergencies. And I want to know that we've got some answers on what governments can and cannot do during emergencies. Or what, I don't know, like definition of emergency? And so we can say to a president, to a governor, to a mayor who declares one, that we can at least sue and have the court say, hey, look, here's the law on what constitutes an emergency, and we're not in one, so you can't do this. That's it. I just, that's it. I, I really want a commission of some sort to look back on COVID. It was such a bad, bad time, bad response with far-reaching consequences that hurt a lot of people. And that right there, that value, hurting a lot of people. This needs to be one of the core motivations for why the Christian participates. We participate in this system of governance because we want to see human flourishing. If we did not flourish during COVID and we are flourish, we, we are really hurt after it. I like to study it and make some rules about it. All right. Just two other things I found in the news, two or three, that I thought had some... Oh, yeah, one final thought on that. And I don't want vengeance. That was the other thing. So vengeance is a bad motivator. Vengeance is a bad agenda setter. Now, this COVID thing, the subset, I don't want to do it for vengeance sake. I just want to do it so we can get it straight. I don't want to punish anybody on the back end. Like that pastor said earlier in the last segment, You know, the real criminals were the people who did this to me, and they should be prosecuted. I don't want to go back and do any of that. I just want to get set for the next emergency and what what powers exist and what don't. All right, let's go. Two or three more stories of things going on in the world. You might have heard that the party on the left in the country, they have been spending a good bit of money, eight figures, advertising for candidates on the right that they think are beatable. So these are candidates who are kind of nutty, almost exclusively just nut jobs, who call themselves MAGA Republicans. They are the Trump folks, and again, quite nutty. And they're not—they're mostly losing their primaries, but they're getting a lot of support and a lot of money from the left. And the, the thinking on the left is, we can beat them. If we can make them the nominee with our advertising and our marketing, then we'll be able to defeat them in general elections. That's their strategy. Here's something that sh- says to me, all of the hand-wringing and gnashing of teeth and the hyperbolic panic over those types of people, it's all fake on the left. When they say, democracy is a danger, you don't, you don't think that. <laughs> you wouldn't risk having this person elected by giving them a bunch of money if you believed it. You obviously believe our institutions and our laws are strong enough to withstand even the nut jobs that you're supporting. Otherwise, what you're doing is so irresponsible and immoral. You're actually giving a lot of money and effort that could possibly end in the election of someone you think is a threat to democracy and freedom itself. You obviously don't believe it. You're liars. And we should see that for what it is. We should see it as a lie. If if they believed it, they wouldn't be giving that much money to them. Second thing, and probably the final one. I've been saying on the show for months, we're in a recession. You're living in one right now, and that we will find out that we're in one when the second quarter numbers come out. So the second quarter ended June 30th. We should be getting numbers from that quarter here very soon, probably before the end of July. 
about whether or not we're technically in a recession and the technical definition is being in a state of, I hate the economists say negative growth, that doesn't make any sense, but economic contraction, shrinkage, fewer dollars changing hands, that's actually the definition of your your economy is how much money is changing hands, how many transactions, or not how many transactions, how many dollars are being exchanged in a given quarter because exchange of currency is actually what creates wealth. I think we're in one. And so when we're in one, and the President of the United States team says, you know, that's not technically the definition. You know, a recession is actually decided by these people. We have a panel of people. And this panel of people over here, they're the ones to decide to declare a, uh, a recession or not. Oh, okay. So for almost a decade, we had a definition to a word, and everyone agreed on it. And out of nowhere, for your own political purposes, you just want to go, no, I'm just kidding. Well, we don't have that definition anymore. We're just going to have panel decide. It's so Orwellian. If you haven't read or listened to, because I actually never read 1984. I listened to 1984 on uh, whatever app that was. I remember this so starkly, that the the ruling regime in uh, wherever he was, um, can't remember can't remember the name of his country at the moment, but he would, Atlanta, Atlanticus or Atlanta, whatever. There were only two other countries on the planet, and they would change who was at war with each other from time to time. And the quote was uh, the government saying, oh no, East Asia has always been at war with Oceania. And like the previous day, the headlines would have been, Oceania and East Asia are at peace. But when they go to war, they just change the truth and say, no, it's just always been that way. And if you don't say what we're saying, then you're the kook and you're the fraud. You're wrong. It's East Asia has always been at war with Oceania. And now it's, uh, recessions have always been declared by this panel of people over here. Not actual facts and measurements we've done for decades. So don't let them fool you. I'll be back with another new edition of the Core Act Show next week, everybody. Until then, peace and love.